Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. We're about to go to our first conversation for today, speaking to the incredible adjunct professor Janine Muhammad. Janine is a Narunga Ghana woman and CEO of the Lowitcher Institute, which is Australia's National Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health and Research. Janine is a regular spokesperson on key topics in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, such as cultural safety, the social and cultural determinants of health, and Indigenous data sovereignty. And she has just been awarded Victorian Australian of the Year in recognition of her legacy as a pioneer for Indigenous healthcare. Janine, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you. I'm still getting used to that title. <laughs> yes. Well, that's actually where I wanted to start with this. Like, yeah. this must be a whirlwind of the time. How are you feeling? I'm pretty stunned still. I'm in shock. Um, but look, um, really honoured um, and very humbled to, you know, to accept the award. When you think about it, there's so many great Australians, but most importantly, Indigenous Australians that have received this award. Um, and one that comes to mind is my you know, I work for the Lowitch Institute, and of course our patrons, Lowitch O'Donoghue, and she received the award 40 years ago. So. I'm in the company of giants. <laughs> that must be such a surreal feeling as well for the, I guess, like the namesake, the um, the inspiration for the Lowitcher Institute being a previous winner and now you as CEO of Lowitcher Institute taking home this uh, this prize. What does it mean for you? Oh, I mean, yeah, just that, that I'm in the company of giants, that it's really wonderful to be able to highlight, you know, my passion, my work over the last, 30 years, and even it's hard to say 30 years, (laughs) Um, but there's, you know, so many people that have been a part of this work with me too. I think most people in these sorts of positions would say that you you never do it alone, whether it's with people that have journeyed alongside you, um, you know, the people that you think about to come after you, but most importantly, the people that have come before you. So, you know, there's many elders and ancestors that, you know, that I thank and um, that stand alongside me. And, you know, it's not just an award for my work, but the award that, you know, the work that's been bestowed upon me and supported um, by others with me. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to highlight that work and honour it. Um, And it's also a bit nice after the referendum. I mean, I don't talk on easy subjects. Mm. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, so it's nice to get a yes after a no. I love that. And also I can just imagine, like, from my experiences with studying at uni and the absolute deadly cohort of young mm. Aboriginal health-focused uh, academics, I mm. imagine your your win, your legacy and everything that you've done so was going to continue to serve as excellent inspiration for just so many of our blackfellas. And so, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know, I'm thrilled to see it as well. Up against 16 finalists to see your name oh, called, no. it's just <laughs> thrilling. <laughs> And now I get uh, eight, eight that go to the to the national. That's even scarier. Yes, <laughs> yes it's um, it's pretty surreal. Oh well, look, our fingers are crossed for you. Um, and I once again just hope your uh, your your wonderful work will be continued to be recognised. I yeah. 
I did want to look. So you've been a pioneer of Indigenous healthcare for decades mm. now, working in Aboriginal community controlled health. So, yeah. you know, solutions by us, from us, um, leading to, from what I, we've had discussions on ingenuity, always leading to better outcomes. Mm. And, and so this is something that you've done at state and national and also international uh, levels, yeah. which is including many of your roles. So, for example, you were the CEO of the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, and to now, mm-hmm. of course, at the Lowitcher Institute. I wanted to sort of take it back to the start and just ask what inspired your career uh, journey into healthcare? Yeah, look, I think like for most of us, it's um, it's the good and the bad that you come across. So I grew up in a little mission called Paint Pierce in South Australia. Um, and really my inspiration comes from the stories, right? Um, the stories of my mum, my nana, my community, um, the winds, because they're always deadly. <laughs> you want more of them. But, you know, the struggles, that's where my real fire in my belly came from, um, watching, you know, people suffer. Um, and my mum, uh, my nana, who raised me, was, um, you know, she particularly suffered from mental illness. And so I got to Jenny with her. She had an overexposure of, you know, being in the health system. And so I witnessed the good and the absolute devastation of that health system. Um, I also saw it in my community, um, you know, people dying from preventable deaths, um, too young, too many funerals that we were going to. Um, and so, you know, in my um, in my mind, I thought about nursing. And just like you said before, it's that um, I'd seen Lowitcher and I'd seen other people within my community become nurses. So I thought, well, that would be pretty deadly. Um, and with no context, never even been to Adelaide or university. So I was the first one to step out um, into, into that system. And what I found in that system was there was no positive course content um, about Aboriginal people. So people like Lowitcher Donahue as nurses weren't even mentioned. You know, the, the the medicine women that were here in the midwives were, that were here when, you know, um, the first fleet came, none of that content. So, But there was a deficit discourse, like a strong deficit mm. discourse about, you know, the ill Aboriginal that um, didn't really have much value in the system um, as opposed to us being, you know, amazing adaptable survivors <laughs> and always placing, you know, the problem of healthcare with us rather than looking at the system that we'd been locked out of, um, you know, that wasn't built to benefit us and was causing us harm. So, yeah, I, also in nursing, I, I learnt the practice of cultural safety um, and I thought that, you know, I saw the transformation with some of the students in my class. So, I, you know, like cultural safety years, I began that lifelong journey in cultural safety and, and really trying to shine a light on how racism um, impacts on our health and wellbeing. Um, I'm also probably inspired and my, my journey is for my kids and other young Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander leaders coming through and their allies to hope that they don't have to do this work of anti-racism into the future. Um, and I always feel there's not enough time, but, um, you know, I'll do my best job while I'm here. Well, you're, you're certainly doing that. Um, I feel like that's very well demonstrated. And you've you've listed, I guess, like a lot of the, the challenges and... Um, the lack of cultural safety in the healthcare system that you were aware of back at the sort of start of your career, mm. how would you how, how would you describe how those issues sort of compare from at that moment of beginning to what you're sort of seeing today? Look, I think the positive thing that I'm saying, and I'll start with the positive, is that there's more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the system than ever before. You know, um, there's people like me now on hospital boards, um, I'm really proud to be on the women's board here um, in Victoria. 
Um, I think there's still a long way to go. If you know my work, you know that I speak um, of people who have passed from preventable deaths in, in our health system, people like Miss Do, Miss Williams, you know, here in Victoria, Miss Day. Mm. Um, so I, I think, you know, when you still have our mob dying because of pro racial profiling and not getting the best care in our health system, um, we've got a long way to go. And so then I guess with the focus on the work that you're doing through the Lowerture Institute, I was wondering yeah. if you could tell our listeners a bit about what the Lowerture Institute aims to achieve mm -hmm. through their work. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I think, you know, ultimately our vision is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experience health equity and amazing lives. <laughs> um, and that's a big vision. But, um, you know, we, we are a national Aboriginal community controlled um, health research institute. That means our, our, our whole board is made up of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, it came about, I suppose I should talk about why it exists, is because research was done on us and about us. It wasn't done by us and for us and research definitely um, that was produced was weaponised against us. Mm. Um, so it actually gave evidence to some of the horrible things that we've endured over time. So our community established the Lowerture Institute. Um, the work that we do, we want our um, communities to do the research that they want. Um, so now we give out research grants and they are 100% led, those research grants, by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers. We give out about 20, um, you know, every two years. We could absolutely do more because they're oversubscribed. But, yeah, about 20 research grants a year. We grow our workforce. So that means that we have training opportunities for people. We give out scholarships, um, you know, just get people inspired to do research because not a real... Um, Dare I say sexy? <laughs> no sexy provision, say. But you know, like we've been, we are, you know, been researchers for millennia. You know, yeah. um, because we have those inquiring minds, and that's how we've survived in, you know, in our diverse country. Um, and then when we take all of that, um, the research that we gather from our communities. We want to make sure that it's impactful um, and that we privilege that research. So um, when we're doing our advocacy work and we're speaking into governments, both at state, um, national and internationally, it's it's our research um, that we're using the evidence from, from black researchers to inform those policies. And of course, like, you know, women will <laughs> will relate to this. There's, there's a lot of research out there and it doesn't include... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and or it doesn't include women and yet they use that research to inform our policy and so that, that, that policy coming back to us as programs and service delivery actually isn't based on our needs. So, um, yeah, so that's some of the work that the Lowitch Institute does. Excellent. And I also saw some of the focus recently as well on um, the area of climate and health. So Lowerture mm. Institute mm -hmm. had recently hosted a climate change and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health ministerial roundtable. Ministerial yep. being, I think, the first time I've ever said that word out loud. Mm -hmm. um, so this happened at <laughs> Parliament House. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about um, uh, the aims of or the focus of climate and health and this discussion of forming a coalition to address it. Yeah, 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 that's right. So a couple of years back, you know, we're just pre-COVID, we saw all the, the hail, the size of golf balls in Canberra, the, the floods that was mm. happening on our east coast, bushfires everywhere. Um, and of course, as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, we're observational scientists. 
<laughs> um, so we knew um, through what we were experiencing in our own environments plus what our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander members and researchers were saying, we had to do some work in this area. So together with our national health leaders, we um, published a paper on climate and health and what that meant for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Australia. Um, and what it really showed was that we, we have these unaddressed social determinants, right, like housing and um, employment, mm. et cetera, that on top of, so it's compounding um, climate change on top of those unaddressed uh, social determinants is yeah, compounding our health outcomes. And, of course, we always wanting to highlight that Indigenous peoples have contributed the least to climate change, yet we will be the most affected by climate change. Um, and um, what we told uh, parliamentarians the other day was that, you know, really this, this climate change that we're seeing is an intensification of colonisation. Um, so we talked to Minister McAllister, uh, Senator Stewart, Senator Cox, and, and who's leading this with us is um, Minister Jed Carney. Um, and what we're saying is that, like with, with most government policies <laughs> that's happening, governments were making decisions about mitigation and adaption, um, but they, they weren't doing that with us as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. So we want them to value and centre us in, in all of this work that they're doing around climate change because of all of the things I've just said. But there's no one single group that they actually have to go to. Um, so we've been doing consultations around the country uh, with oh, well over 50 Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander groups that are saying, look, we want to come together um, and actually elevate, elevate our voices into that planning with like a coalition. Thank you. And can you fund it, please? Excellent. <laughs> This, is, this actually ties in quite well with a conversation we'll be having in the second half of today's show as well, just the impact of yeah. climate change on Indigenous communities, especially as the least contributing, but unfortunately the most affected. So, yeah, and I think, oh, no, no, sorry, please. I was just going to say, and the, the other thing that we're really trying to say too, as diverse as our country is, you know, from um, rainforest to desert, so are our communities. So there can't be a one-size-fits-all model. Um, to addressing climate change um, and certainly the stories of remote Aboriginal communities, what they're saying, and, and you know, rural and um, urban communities is it's that this is also disrupting our cultural determinants, you know. Mm. Waterways that we've had as a part of our song lines and um, our dreaming stories are drying up. And, you know, so that's also meaning that flora and fauna aren't there anymore. So the ability to go hunting, you know, being displaced from country, um, are also the effects of climate change that perhaps non-Indigenous Australia um, aren't thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And we have had similar discussions as well on Indigenuity mm -hmm. around this topic. It does seem like a lot of um, the, uh, I guess, the effects of climate change that we are seeing because of the way that countries so interconnected and the way that, you know, if countries well, we're well, countries sick, we're mm -hmm. sick. Um, you can mm -hmm. see that it just really keeps popping up in all these conversations, climate mm -hmm. change impacting all areas of mm -hmm. our knowledges and of our, um, our existence, which is really yeah. uncomfortable, but it's wonderful that people like yourself um, are focusing on this area and trying to create change. So I'm very appreciative. Yeah. No, that's okay. And with our brothers and sisters from across the Pacific too, you know, mm. that we're going to have climate refugees not long now. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've got to start thinking about them and making them, you know, we're good We're good hosts as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander <laughs> people to our detriment. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're even thinking about that, you know, about our brothers and sisters and how that's going to affect them and where they're going to make home.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, it really is in theme with what we'll be chatting about today too, that solidarity with our Pacific brothers and sisters um, in the mm. face of uh, rising sea levels and other effects of climate change. I wanted to, because you've made mention a few times now so far about um, how often research has been done um, uh, about us, but not with, uh, not for us and not with us. And so another goal or focus of the Larcher Institute is about um, uh, the, I guess, like data collection methodology, methodologies and making sure they're inclusive of culture. And so I was wondering if you could sort of speak to that idea about, um, I guess, like the relationship between um, culture and data collection. Mm, yeah, well, there's some amazing work if the listeners want to um, look at the My Kauai study, which is um, done by uh, Professor Ray Lovett at ANU. Um, he talks about the, um, the the cultural determinants, which you've heard me say a couple of times before, mm. um, and, and he puts them into domains, if you like. So, you know, things like um, being able to practice ceremony, like birthing on country, talks about our languages, um, our spirituality and how all of those are, as you've already said, in, need to be in equilibrium, you know, to, to ensure that we have good health outcomes. And he also talks now, um, he's starting to do more work around how racism actually doesn't allow our cultural determinants to flourish and how that also therefore impacts on our health outcomes. But yeah, we've done a, a lot of work with Ray around our fundamental right to, you know, control our data. Um, so that means developing our data, so what data is important to us, um, then to be able to use that data, um, maintain our data, we know, within our own um, protection and our own governance, um, and to ensure that data isn't weaponised against us. <laughs> um, because, as I said earlier, often the problem's placed with us mm. rather than on the system. So, um, and, you know, most Indigenous health data sets, particularly in the national level, level are collected and controlled by government organisations, um, which is problematic for, you know, so many reasons. And, you know, some of the, the, the issues that we've also had is that, you know, systems haven't ever thought about what we, we as Indigenous people would like to measure. Um, the systems weren't set up to measure racism, for example. So anything that we do to counteract racism, we don't even have a me measurement for that. So, again, at the Lower Chi Institute, we know it's really vital for Indigenous data to be owned, controlled, collected and reported by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And, and it tells our story and our truth. Um, and that's why, yeah, so we're doing lots of work in that space and, and in particular growing our workforce around it to be able to collect and analyse that data. Excellent. I love that, growing the workforce. All I'm thinking of is more deadly blackfellas um, entering the system and hopefully leading to uh, better results and hopefully more, you know, sort of optimistic conversations in future, um, reflecting on what mm. was but not, hopefully, is not continuing. A bit tongue-tied yeah. today. But <laughs> That's okay. And that we're valued in that system, hey? Absolutely. Or else we're not going to stay. <laughs> Well, Janine, thank you so much for your time today. I, it really is an honour. Um, it's such a privilege to be able to chat with you uh, about your work. And congratulations on this recent Victorian Australian of the Year. My fingers are going to be thoroughly crossed and toes um, that you might take it home <laughs> at the national level. Um, thank you. And thank you for having me today. And um, I hope you and your listeners have a great day. Thank you, Janine. So we've just been chatting with the wonderful adjunct professor, Janine Muhammad, who is also Victoria's Australian of the Year um, and was just speaking with us about the incredible work that, um, <clears throat> that she's doing as the CEO of the Lower Institute.
So uh, if you are just tuning in right now, uh, don't fear. Uh, you can actually log on to rrr.org.au later in the afternoon or, hey, maybe sometime next week, keep an eye out for the Indigenuity podcast um, and be able to listen back on this conversation and not miss a single minute. Unfortunately, due to an unforeseen emergency, the wonderful Uncle Babai Babai and Uncle Paul Kabai, the climate fighters who are holding the Australian government accountable in the High Court for their failure to protect the Torres Strait from the effects of climate change, are no longer able to speak with us. We are very, very grateful, though, that their associate, passionate climate activist and sub-I woman Chelsea Aniba will be calling in to have this conversation with us instead. So very excited to still be able to have um, this focus on this wonderful, uh, the wonderful work of um, these two elders, the this ongoing court case, which has started in 2021, and also the recent climate strike. So Chelsea um, is studying a Bachelor of, Law, Bachelor of Law at Charles Sturt University with her focus being native title. So Chelsea, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on the program. And um, first and foremost, uh, acknowledgement to the traditional landowners um, on whose land I'm speaking upon here in Cairns. And also um, acknowledgements to the traditional land where we're broadcasting throughout um, Victoria and Melbourne today. Perfect. Thank you so thank much, you for Chelsea. Me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on so, with such short notice, but we are very appreciative for your time. I wanted to start off by asking, so you have been a witness to much of this landmark case by Uncles Paul and Uncle Papai. I was wondering if you could give our listeners some insight into what this case is. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's, it's about Boigu and Saibai Island. For listeners um, who don't know, there are um, two communities, two island communities up in the Torres Strait, uh, on the western side of the Torres Strait near only a couple of um, kilometers from um, PNG. And um, we've been experiencing the effects of uh, climate change and uh, inundation and erosion where um, our coastal um, front of our communities are experiencing um, high, high tides, very high tides. We're getting hot summers and um, also um, we've had seawalls um, built in the community. However, those are not enough because each year the um, the water um, is rising um, by a couple of meters. Um, with this case, um, elders, Uncle Paul and Uncle Sabai, uh, as you've explained it to your listeners, are taking the government um, basically for duty of care to look after us. Um, and our communities and our families. They have um, the consultation uh, with all the uh, community members and um, had a community members give witness to the federal judge when the federal judge in court came on two countries, on Boigu and on Saibai. And that's where I started um, being involved, where I was a part of the defense, the barristers of... Um, uh, defense team and I got the privilege to sit with them at the table when the court was presiding on Saibai. Um, since then um, the, they had a sitting in Cairns and in the last couple of weeks they had uh, not la- yeah, last week and this week they've been um, sitting in Melbourne and I had a chance to sit in on that 
and um, was very privileged to be a part of that because to sit in there and have the experts now giving and talking, um, giving the um, data and uh, basically just supporting what the community witnesses were saying, what the community uh, evidence and what they were saying was actually the same as what the experts were um, were saying in court. So, um, yeah, and I think they've got um, another full week next week of um, court and hopefully early next year we'll have a decision. Wow. Especially after two years, that's incredible. So I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, it was something I was reading about earlier, but that this isn't a fight for something that we're trying to prevent, but this is a, a situation where we're already seeing the effects and impacts of climate change on these islands, um, which is, uh, I guess, provides a sense of urgency as well to this fight. You, you said how there were, I guess, on-country uh, hearings or testimony um, earlier in the year and now in the last like week or so and continuing over the next week as well there are also continued hearings here in Nam. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what that experience was like to have um, I guess a high court proceeding occurring on country. Uh, well you know with uh, in Torres Strait history um, to do with um, um, federal court as you know we had the Mabo case and one that native title over at Murray Island. So for the federal court to come back into Torres Strait and be on bye-bye, now that was history that was made. Mm. And to have the judge and the solicitors, the barristers, walk on country, visiting sacred sites, visiting the cemetery um, that's been inundated and um, affected by coastal erosion, to have them come into community and see the effects of climate change. It's not about prevention, like you said. It's actually we're in effect of it now. So they, they were taken also to our gardening places, and um, Uncle Paul and Uncle Paul was telling them how, when he was um, young as a child, the the garden food that they used to grow back then were very large, and today you can't get what you used to do, what you used to get the vegetables on the ground like taro. Um, uh, cassava and um, uh, sweet potatoes. You can't get them the size anymore. And it's because the ground itself has salt water um, uh, in, in the ground itself, so the food can't really grow. So it's not only coastal erosion on the seawall front, but it's also having that come into on ground in inland and um, affecting our gardening areas as well for our traditional food. So to have the barristers and the um, the judge actually walk on country and have them look and witnessing this, you know, that was it was really good that they were there on country to see that, mm-hmm. and not only see that but feel that and feel community give witness as to how it used to be, and feel and hear in their voices how they've been affected. So I guess seeing that. Um uh, I guess the impact of that you would assume would be very much more sort of instead of this, uh, you know, sort of removed discussion of communities that are sort of, um, you know, not at the forefront of our site. Sorry, apologies with my phrasing today. It's a bit bit of a um, using some interesting words for my final show of the year. But um, I guess that would have had a very strong impact being able to be on country to be showing um, the way that climate change is already affecting country and to see that emotional response as well from um, elders and knowledge holders sharing that that moment and that understanding. I feel like that would be very impactful. Um, 
I wanted to also yeah. then ask you about. So you've been you've been quite busy because it's not just the court case that was happening in Nam over the recent weeks, but also on Friday you spoke at a school strike for climate. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that day of action. Yes, well, I've been um, invited by Grada to uh, attend um, the national uh, school strike um, that was held on Friday, uh, but also I was invited to speak on a panel um, Senator um, Pocock is introducing in Parliament a um, bill for duty of care for young people, and especially in the decision-making um, at a federal level. So before going to Melbourne, I went um, to Canberra and was um, speaking together with um, and and Sharma um, and also um, other panellists that was talking and um, uh, I guess um, supporting this new bill that, that's coming along. Wow. Um, and that was the essence of, um, I guess, my leadership because I'm, I'm a community leader back at home where I support the next generation. It's not about just looking at the gaps and what issues we have in community, but it's looking at the next generation and um, making it making a better tomorrow for them to live in. So after Parliament and being a part of um, the bill um, introduction by Senator Pocock, I was uh, I went over to Melbourne, went and sat in court with Uncle Paul and uh, Uncle Pabai, and then went to the strike on Friday. And that was, um, you know, it was, uh, it was really good to see a lot of um, young people so passionate about climate change and, you know, really passionate about it. And they, they're there to say that, you know, we are here, we are worried about what happens tomorrow. We are worried about our future, our livelihood, and the next generation. And to march in Melbourne, and that was my first strike, that was my first uh, protest. And I got to say, Melbourne is a very big place, and to be a part amongst the next generation and do that, you know, it was it was just um, uh, a, a surreal feeling um, that I, I was very lucky and blessed to be a part of. Oh, that is beautiful. And it, yeah, I can, the strength in numbers in Nam, um, especially when it comes to a good cause, it's definitely very, um, very uh, evident, very easy to see. So I'm, I'm, one, I'm so glad that you were able to, to feel that and to see that being in Nam for the climate strike as well. Yes, I, and um, it, it was good that there, was a, there weren't um, only school kids there. We had the young, we had the old, we had the babies. We had all walks of life at the park and was a part of this strike. We have even had others travel from um, long distance that came in particular just uh, to be a part of that and come out of remote communities as well uh, to be a part of that strike. So, yeah, climate justice is um, talked about and, uh, and supported by everybody, not even in the cities, but out in the remote communities as well. And would you have any words of advice or encouragement for any of our listeners who might be wanting to, um, to I guess, have more, more of an active role in the fight against climate change? Oh, yes. Well, um, there's a lot of um, groups that are out there uh, that are fighting against um, um, government uh, and is fighting for um, climate change, climate justice. Um, we've got, um, if you want to understand, Keep um, an up-to-date with um, 
Agapol's um, case, then the um, Australia Climate Change on Instagram, on Facebook, or you can just Google it, and they usually give a, give out a brief of um, updates um, uh, regularly. Um, also, it's good to um, have a look at what's happening in the Pacific as well, because um, we in the Torres Strait is working together with the Pacific Nations. Um, it's called Kalna Sipa in language, which means standing together strong. So we've, we've got them as well. So when you uh, search climate change, have a look at what's happening in the Pacific as well. So, yeah, it's, not, um, it's, a, it's a global issue that we're all um, fighting as well, Chelsea, thank you so much for your time and uh, really sincere thank you for all of the hard work that you and also Uncle Paul and Uncle Papai are doing in this fight. And thank you so much for your time today as well at short notice. Uh, I hope you enjoyed your time in Nam and have a safe trip back home. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to, um, uh, for you to have me on the show and um, uh, a great good day to all your listeners. Bye. <laughs> thank you, Chelsea. So we've just been chatting with Sabai uh, climate activist Chelsea Aniba, who um, was here on behalf of Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai, who could no longer make today's interview. But super glad to be able to still have that very important conversation and also that recommendation from Chelsea there at the end, that if you would like to keep up to date with this monumental landmark case where Uncle Paul Kabai and Uncle Pabai Pabai are t- holding the government accountable for their inaction on climate change and their uh, failure to protect the Torres Strait from the effects of climate change, which we are now seeing. You can keep up to date by going to Australian Climate Change on social media, follow the case and to offer your support. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.